Chapter Ten of The Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ten. The fishing station covered several islands that lay close in under the precipitous mountainside, and as there were no bridges over the sounds between them, there was a constant passing backward and forward of small boats. Scattered over these islands were several hundred little fishermen's huts with roofs of turf, and above them rose the church, the hospital, the fisherman's home, and the station king's white house and long yellow warehouse. In the sounds and on the bay rocked a forest of masts belonging to steamers, sailing vessels, and boats, large and small. There were more than thirty such fishing stations upon the Lofoten Islands, and at this time of the year they were all busy little towns. There were fishermen from even farther north than south, and altogether they peopled a stretch of coast some fifteen hundred miles in length. The men had to have a day or two in which to settle down, and they carried many a heavy burden on their shoulders up from the boat into the outer room in the hut. The after-cabin had to come off and the high rigging to come down, for these were used only on the voyage north and south, the lower rigging alone being employed as long as the fishing went on. When all this was accomplished, the men had a little breathing space in which to look at the wind and weather, chat with the men from Nuland, and drink a dram with old acquaintances. Christaver stood on the edge of the wharf, looking at the seal, which, after her re-rigging, was lying among a number of other boats. They lay side by side along the sound, as if resting after their long voyage, some with a green line around the sheer strake, others with a white line, while a few had the brown tar-color all over. Each of them could have told a tale of the fishing-banks and the voyages in storm and fog. One had sailed home with wealth, another had capsized, and her crew had been washed from her keel into the waves one night, and yet there she now lay, looking perfectly innocent. Beside a Stoutlander, the Nuland boat looked slim and light, with her backward curving prow, as though throwing back her head before dashing through wind and wave. The Stout's boat was heavier in her lines and bigger, and, as she lay there, seemed to say to the Nuland boat, if you're ever out in a storm, you may thank the Lord if I'm anywhere in the neighborhood. It was the seal, however, that Christavit was looking at. His feeling for the boat was like that of a man toward his horse, and he almost expected it would know him and whinny to him. Well, he said to himself, we've got here all right, but it looked dangerous. She's still a little willful, and I must try to cure her of that. Turning, he walked in his light land-boots in among the rows of houses. The odor of the fishing-station made his nostrils quiver, and always gave him a feeling of youth and raised many expectations. Suppose it were to be a good fishing-season this winter! Fishermen swarmed everywhere, from honest farmer-fishermen in homespun to wandering sailors who seemed made up of sea-boots, sailcloth, and beard. Outside one or two huts, fish were already hung up to dry. A door opened, and a hairy fellow emptied a cooking-pot into the road. Heads, bones, and intestines of fish lay scattered everywhere, 
and high above the roofs of the houses grey and white gulls hovered screaming through it all sounded the heavy booming of the sea christopher greeted an acquaintance here and there but did not stop he was the kind of man that people turn to look at after he has passed the stalwart man in homespun had an easy gait and there was not a grey hair in his short red beard or on his fair curly head he would still occasionally join in a dance of an evening and though he might frighten people out of their wits on the sea he was all sunshine on land and no one could laugh more heartily over a dram and a good story than christopher this year he had his boy with him however and if he knew him aright Lash had two eyes that would take note of everything that his father did. But he could never quite get hold of Lash. The boy seemed to go round him, measuring and weighing him, and considering whether he was the kind of man that he himself would care to follow. Well, well, he had more book-learning and a good head, but if his mother got her way and made him part company with his father and leave the whole business, then, well— then things would not be quite what he had expected when he ventured into all this with a seal. Hello! It surely isn't you! It was me yesterday, but is it really you? Christopher had run right into Edwin Hansen, a friend from Varanger in the north, and the man stood laughing all over his red beardless face. Christopher held out his hand and laughed too. The two had met here every winter for thirty years. Christopher had saved the other one stormy night when he was clinging to the keel of his capsized boat, and once Edwin had drawn his knife and saved Christopher from being killed by drunken sailors in a riot. Since then they had been so much together when on shore that people began to nickname them lovers. "'Are you all right?' "'I'm just as right as can be,' said the Newlander. "'But, by the by, the commander is expected here.' "'No. Are we going to have a visitation already?' "'Yes, confound it. You'll have to know your lesson now, Christopher.' The commander was the chief inspector, and if Providence was ever in Lufotna at all, it must have been in this man's form.' It was no trifling matter when he steamed into a fishing station, his vessel flying the government flag. People knew that he had been in wars abroad and went about with bullets in his body. He was also aide-de-camp to the king at the palace, and scolded and raged at high and low. Caps flew off wherever he appeared. Edwin Hansen took Christopher into a bar, where they sat talking over a cup of coffee, telling each the other about his home. The Nulander had heard so often about Maria and Tosten and Olaf that he asked about them as if he had known them intimately, and Christopher asked about the other's wife and children, and knew them just as well, although they were many miles off. Yes, he had lost two brothers since they last met. One of them had died in his bed, and the other was drowned in the Varangerfjord in the autumn. "'Oh, you don't mean it!' exclaimed Christopher, gazing at him. "'Yes, it was unfortunately true, but one of the widows owned half of the implements and the boat that he was headman in, and received a third of what was taken by them, so that she was quite well off, he was very glad to say. "'And what about the other?' "'The other? 
Well, she had nothing whatever to live upon, not so much as a cottage on an island, so he had brought her and her four children home to his own cottage before he left. Why, but you've got a wife and six children yourself, and only a cottage on an island. Right you are, that's just what it is. And as to room, why, some of the children have to sleep under the kitchen dresser, but except from that it's all plain sailing. A brother's a strange thing, and it's worse for the one that's dead to keep the widow and the children than for the one that's living. Well, that's how it is. You've got to keep going and trust to the fishing and luck. But I've heard you've got your son with you this year. When Christavid was once more hurrying along between the rows of houses, he was stopped by Peter Susansa. "'Have you heard the news?' he said. "'Jakob declares that he is going to stand in the street this evening and offer the commander a dram.' "'Oh, that'll be a sight. I wouldn't mind taking a ticket to see it.' "'It'll be at seven o'clock. The commander is going to a party at the station king's then, and Jakob is going to stand there and wait for him.' Christopher laughed heartily, and as he hurried on he could see in the faces of all he met that it was this news about Jacob that was sending them hither and thither. Even the Jew Moses was trotting about with his curly black hair under a fur cap, and his hands buried deeply in the pockets of his brown coat, exclaiming, "'Have you heard the news? Wonderful news! That Jacob! Ach, Gott! Haven't Sie heard it?' There was a crowd of fishermen in the shop at the station kings, chewing tobacco and spitting and exchanging news, but they were not making any purchases, for they had not yet earned any money. Moreover, there was a silent war going on between the fishermen and the man behind the counter. The shop assistant, in his high boots and shining leather coat, stood with a yard measure in his hand, looking out of the window, but there was nothing to do. The shopkeeper himself came in now and then from the office, and pretended to look for something on one of the shelves. But the shop full of fishermen might have been empty air for all the notice he took of them. He was a stout, grey-haired man, with a florid, wrinkled face and yellowish eyes, which he screwed up when he looked at anything. The day was past when hats and southwesters were removed from their owners' heads the moment he made his appearance. He had once been king in more than name, and that was when no fisherman dared to sell what he had caught to any other than him, and when he fixed the prices and owned all the huts, and could demand whatever rents he chose. One day, however, the government authorities stepped in, with the result that the fishermen lost all their respect, and dropped all that could be called politeness, sold their fish to the trading vessels, and wanted credit at the shop. There they stood now, with flashing eyes that seemed to say, We aren't afraid of you any longer. For hundreds of years men like you have oppressed us fishermen, here and all over Lofoten, but now we snap our fingers in your face and tell you to be off. The old man did not see them, but went back into his office. Lars and Cornelis Gumon were out together, wandering about the islands, both in blue caps and homespun clothes. They were about the same height. Cornelis was twelve years the senior, but if it had not been for his fair moustache his face would have looked quite as youthful as that of his companion. He was going to show the boy all the sights of the station, and as they hurried along, 
Lars tried to imitate the other's manner of rocking from side to side as he walked, wearing his cap on one side and looking the deuce of a fine fellow. "'Have you thought when you're going to stand treat?' asked Cornelis. "'No. What's that?' asked Lars. "'Ha, ha! He doesn't know what standing treat is. Do you know what a scory is?' "'No. Is it a bird or a fish?' "'Well, in the first place it's a one-year-old gull, a gull like that one over the sound there. But besides that, it's a lad that's come to the Lofoten fishing for the first time.' "'Oh, then I'm a scory.' "'Of course you are. But a scory has to treat all the men in his hut.' "'To treat? Is that to give them a thrashing?' Lash was trying to acquire a taste for chewing tobacco, and was spitting a brown juice in every direction. <laughs> laughed Cornelis, measuring him with his eye from top to toe. No, no, my friend, it is to stand drinks. A quart of spirits to every man is the least you can do. Oh, dear, that's tremendous. But there is no spirits to be bought at the station. Cornelis laughed. <laughs> you come with me one evening on board a trading vessel, and you'll see you can get as many hundred quarts as you'd like. They visited a few bars, and Lars could see on what good terms Cornelis was with all the girls. Afterward, when he went about the island, people soon let him know what he himself was. He was a scory, they said, and he would have to stand drinks. But where in the world was he to get all the money for such a quantity of spirits? Arndorsan was sitting alone in the hut, with his elbows on the table and his chin resting on his hands. He was alone, yes. The others were out enjoying themselves in the Lofoten atmosphere, and even the boy Lars knew about everything both on board and on shore, because he had grown up among accounts and tales of fishing life. But he himself, who in his valley at home was considered to be a fine fellow, had up to the present only been the laughing stock of the whole crew on board the boat. He could learn the way to do things on board and their names, but as to being a seaman. Whenever he opened his lips to say a word about wind and weather, the others winked at one another and smiled. And he had to stand this for a whole winter. Ah! Oh. If he were only at home again, he would sit down and scribble a letter to Gurina. He had never longed so much to take her on his knee and talk to her as he did now, but there were hundreds of miles between them. The door opened, and Henry Robin came in, closing it after him. For a moment he stood looking at Arndt with a little smile. His eyes were large and serious, and his hair and beard well combed. "'You look as if you were down in the dumps,' he said. "'Well, it is no concern of yours if I am,' said Arndt, crossly. "'No, no, but come out with me for a turn. I must show you the sights of the station, and perhaps we can get a cup of coffee and a dram. Come on.' Arndt pulled the rusty beard beneath his chin doubtfully, but then rose, and they went out together. A shooting-gallery had been set up on one of the wharfs, and the place was crowded with seamen bent on having a shot. "'Fancy throwing away your money on that,' said Arndt. But Henry thought it was amusing to watch, and he would even like to have a shot himself, 
only it didn't happen to be convenient just today. They went into a tavern and ordered coffee, and some drunken sailors sitting there began to fight. Arndt was about to interfere and turn them out, but Henry kept him back. Let them fight it out, he said, adding that he would not mind being in a good fight himself, only as it happened there was no chance of it just today. Arndt stared at him in surprise. He could never make that fellow out. Toward evening the commander's vessel, flying the government flag, entered the bay, with the commander in uniform on board. Two sub-inspectors rowed quickly out, raising their hands to their caps when still at some distance, and in somewhat of a tremor at the prospect of coming face to face with the all-powerful one. He stepped down into their boat and let them row him in over the bay, while his eagle eye glanced around from vessel to vessel. And why the deuce is that oil steamer lying there? he suddenly thundered. There was no other place for her, sir, one of the sub-inspectors ventured to say. Place be damned, returned the commander. She's lying right in the way of all the traffic both out and in. Get her out of the road and lose no time about it. They rowed in through the sounds, the commander standing up and looking at the two long rows of fishing boats lying along both wharves side by side, like horses in a stable. This was right, but that he never said. When a thing was as it should be, he only cleared his throat and said nothing. It was a clear, frosty evening, with the first appearance of a thin moon in the eastern sky. The snow creaked under many feet and round the huts in the neighbourhood of the station king's house the roads were black with people, with much excited whispering and subdued chuckling. The commander would soon be coming, and what would he do with Jakob? Henry Robin and Aunt Olson had taken up a good position from which they could see the door of the station king's house. Uneven, creaking steps were heard in the snow, and Jakob appeared, with a bottle protruding from his pocket. He had shaved his upper lip, and it was quite blue. Ho, ho, he said with a grin. When Jakob was in extra good spirits, he always said ho, ho. You daren't do it, said a man in the crowd, in a low voice. Oh, dear, no, I daren't do it. Oh, dear, no, replied Jakob, as he limped on between two black walls of people. Suddenly a stillness fell upon the crowd. "'Here he comes,' said a voice, and a shiver seemed to pass through them. The creaking of a quick, firm step was heard. It was the commander. He faced the moon as he came, and it shone upon a sturdy, erect figure, with a clear-cut, clean-shaven face and keen eyes. His cap was a little on one side, and over his double-breasted coat he wore a fur collar. The sight of the crowds awaiting people on both sides made him hesitate, and many of them were in such suspense as to what was going to happen that they forgot to remove their southwesters. The commander slackened his pace and glanced from side to side. At last he halted, and in a voice of thunder said, "'What's going on here?' Upon this the creaking of uneven steps was heard and Jacob emerged from the crowd and advanced toward the commander, who was standing between the two rows of people, with his shadow behind him on the snow. "'Beg pardon,' said Jacob, taking off his southwester. "'It was only—' 
Oh, it's you, is it? Are you here again this winter? Have you come to promise that you'll behave properly, so that we shan't have any rows? It was only to ask if you would. If there is anything you want, man, you know where the inspector's office is. Go home and behave properly. The commander began to move on. Now, however, Jacob simply stepped in front of him, and stood with his southwester in his hand, broad and crooked, with a smile upon his face. To think of boxing the ears of a man with such a face was an impossibility. It was only to ask if we might welcome you, sir. We've heard that you're thinking of resigning, sir, and if you do, all Lofoten will be sorry. That was all, sir, and we're here to ask if you'll let us give you a cheer. And then we want to ask you, sir, to do us the honour to drink a dram with us. It's Lisholm Akavitae. And before the commander had recovered from his astonishment, Jakob had drawn the bottle from his pocket, removed the cork, and after wiping its mouth with the palm of his hand, handed the bottle to the amazed officer. At this juncture, Eleseus Hilla, who was standing exactly opposite the White House, but had taken care to have at his back a door through which he could escape if the necessity arose, prepared to take flight, but wanted to see what took place up to the last possible minute. The commander had not yet taken the bottle, but he cleared his throat. "'That's you all over,' he said at last, suddenly taking the bottle. But before putting it to his mouth he said in a loud voice that all could hear, "'You're celebrating my funeral too early, children.' I've no intention of resigning, and I hope to go on abusing you for many years to come. Your health! And he raised the bottle to his lips, threw back his head, and drank so that the liquid gurgled. A cheer for the commander! cried Jakob, who could now hardly keep his feet in his wild enthusiasm. The cheers resounded on all sides as the commander returned the bottle, waved his hand deprecatingly, and actually ran. Oh, that Jakob, said Aunt Orson, what's the good of such fool's play? Henry, however, thought it was splendid, and only wished he was man enough to do the same sort of thing himself. We must have a dram after that, he added. Finally he succeeded in getting Arndt to go with him to a wharf where dancing was going on. It gives zest to the dancing when there is only one girl to every hundred men and Arndt was thinking only of Gurina. Henry followed the couple with his eyes, and looked as if he would like to dance too, but just this evening nothing came of it. End of chapter 10